This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Our first reading this morning is from Luke chapter six, uh, sorry, Luke chapter three, verses one to six. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Empress Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the word of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see, shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are, were hungry are fat with spoil. The baron has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises up the poor from the, ash, from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversaries shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. I'm an odd choice to be a preacher in this sermon series about singing, as I'm as pretty much non-musical as you can get. In fact, as a child, I played the violin for six years and failed grade one at the end of them. 
I was once holding a musical friend's toddler in church and he covered his ears with his hands while I was singing. And once, when I was standing next to my principal during a school assembly, she leaned over after the hymn had ended and said, it's a good thing you have other talents. I'm not musical, but one of the cool things about being not musical is that you don't know when you're singing out of tune. You can just sing as loudly as you like, and you have no idea if you are hitting the notes or not. And for those of us who don't know what the notes are supposed to be, or what a chord is, or how to clap in time, singing is filled with being an embodied manner of worshipping God. Because there's something about different about singing, isn't there? It isn't just the words. It's like the difference between poetry and pose. Poetry and music take normal words and put them into the realm of the aesthetic. They take them into the realm of the beautiful. And beauty is something we hold on to dearly as Christians because delight in beauty reminds us that we believe the world isn't just material or accidental. We are not just a random series of cause and events. It tells us we are not just evolved creatures. We are made in the image of a creative, beauty-giving God. And this world is heavy with the weight of transcendence. We're not just bags of chemicals. We're made for truth and purpose. So when we think about the songs that we are looking at in this series, it's important to remember that they are that, songs. They are not just the words and the clinical meanings that they express. They were written to be sung, and in singing, we are not just saying words. Singing is an act that reminds us that all of who we are is made to worship the one true God. So singing is an act of defiance in a world that wants us to be stressed out, tired, and apathetic. Singing boldly proclaims that we have joy, not because our singing is beautiful, although it may well be, but because we are worshipping a God who is in control when we are not, who gives us hope in a world that can offer very little. But it can be hard to sing with joy and sometimes harder to hear songs of grace. So we can take our model from Hannah, whose song we heard read from 1 Samuel chapter 2. To understand why Hannah is singing, we first need to understand 1 Samuel chapter 1, which centers on the story of Hannah. Hannah lives at the very end of the period of the judges. Israel has been led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt. We heard about that in last week's sermon. And the judges were people who led Israel after Moses' death into the promised land. By the end of the judges, uh, God's people now pretty much living in the promised land, but they do not yet have a king. That's the kind of big picture, but 1 Samuel starts with a very specific story about a lady named Hannah, and she's married to a man called Elkanah, and he has another wife. Her name is Penaniah. Penaniah has kids. The Bible doesn't tell us how many, but it uses plural sons and plural daughters, so we assume at least four. Um, Hannah has no children, and this causes her great pain. I've been thinking a lot about why Hannah is in distress at having no children. And there's certainly a cultural element here. This is an era of history where having children is a symbol of blessing from the Lord. And children are also the means by which your family, your name, and your inheritance are assured. 
There would be a social cultural element here where Hannah might be considered defective or less than in a culture where women's jobs are childbearing and rearing. Furthermore, children were a means of social security. They would take care of you in your old age. So Hannah might have been worried about that. But I also think there's a very real possibility that Hannah would just like to be a mum because that's who Hannah is and that's what Hannah wants. And we don't know if it's one or many of these reasons that is pushing Hannah to the despair in which she is described in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. But we do know that there are three people who don't make her feel any better. The first is Penaniah. That's the other wife, the one who has kids. Every year, Hannah, Elkanah, and Penaniah and her children would go to worship the Lord at Shiloh. And as part of the, that, there is a ritual of handing out of the portions of meat. Penaniah is given a whole lot of portions for herself and all her kids. And you can imagine Hannah seeing that, looking at Penaniah and her portions, and feeling so excluded and inadequate, like this whole temple ritual was designed to mock her. We've just come through the Christmas season, a season that's really beautiful and filled with joy, but it's really designed for families. If you don't feel like you are the model of what a family should be at Christmas, it can seem like this really good ritual is designed to make you feel more alone and excluded. That's how I imagine Hannah feeling, uh, and to rub salt in her wound, Penaniah provokes and irritates Hannah. She mocks Hannah in her deepest pain. And Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, he's a sweet guy, but he doesn't get it. Uh, he makes it all about him. He says to Hannah, why are you weeping? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Which is nice, uh, but you could just imagine Hannah rolling her eyes and thinking, it's not about you, mate. And then finally, we have Eli the priest, who mistakes Hannah's earnest prayers for drunkenness and tells her to put away the wine. You might think that Hannah, feeling tormented and alone, would just give up, say, this is too hard. She might become bitter or turn her back on God. And yet, she is a woman of earnest faith. And we know from her song, she's one who knows God's character deeply. She doesn't give up. Rather, she takes her distress, her pain, her anger to God, and she pours out to him from the depth of her heart. And the Lord blesses her and gives her a son, and the text says that the Lord remembers her, which is the same word that it uses for God's relationship with Moses and Abraham. It isn't that God had forgotten, but rather he is choosing to use this moment and this person in his plan for the salvation of the world. One thought before we go on. Hannah's story makes me a little bit uncomfortable as a preacher because I think it would be so easy to draw a quick and easy lesson that God, when you pray in faith, God answers your prayers in the way you want him to. And this is true for Hannah and sometimes it's true for other people too. However, if you've read any other parts of the Bible or been a Christian for any length of time, you will know that God's answers to our prayers are sometimes mysteriously and heartbreakingly no. Uh, sometimes wait, sometimes a slow transformation of our desires to his will. Prayer is mysterious, but as we learn from Hannah, it's a submission of our will over to God, speaking out of the depths of our heart to him 
and trusting in his holy, sovereign control, remembering that he is a God of grace and possibility. So you can imagine the scene ending with Hannah holding baby Samuel. But before the text moves on from the story of Hannah, we have in chapter 2 recorded her song. And from it, we can not only learn about Hannah's unshakable faith, but also the character of the God in whom she trusts. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah introduces her song by telling us about her heart's exaltation of the Lord. It is in him that her mouth rejoices. And this reminds us that it is indeed a song, a state of worship. And maybe we can imagine Hannah dancing around the kitchen, holding little Samuel as she rejoices in this baby and the God who is unfathomably good. She tells us in verse 2 that God is beyond compare. She repeats it three times to make sure we get the point. Who is holy like the Lord? No one. Is there anyone beside him? Nope. Is there a rock like our God? No way. This is an incomparable God. And in what ways is he incomparable? Hannah focuses on his love and his capacity to lift up the lowly people. Even when they seem to be in what feels like unshakable positions when viewed from human terms, like the mighty warriors, God can just break their bows. This is an important theme because it's developed not just in terms of earthly power, but in God's capacity to bring life from death, to reach even to the most evil and the most suffering, and to lift people up. This is a God of resurrection, a God who can make anything possible. And Hannah knows this because she, who was considered barren, has born a child. In fact, the name Hannah means grace. And we can see here that Hannah's life is marked by God's grace, God's unexpected and undeserved goodness. And if Hannah knows God's capacity to bring life from death enough to sing about, how much more clearly can we as Christians see that? Because not only do we have the certainty of Jesus' resurrection, which assures us of our resurrection, but also our lives are marked by freedom from death, that is, slavery to sin. And instead, we have the joy in the life that's brought about by the Spirit. That is the joy in which we sing. We follow a God who lifts the poor from the dust and gives them a place of honour with princes. Hannah's song declares what she knows to be true, that, there are tho that those who are marginalised or considered least by society are precious in the eyes of God. They are dear to him, and whilst the places that society apportions to them might appear fixed, God has both the power and inclination to change that. So Hannah declares, it is not by might that one prevails, which in her song is about military and physical strength. Hannah would have felt that as a woman living when she did, someone with limited physical strength and very small political capital. She knows that it's not because of her accomplishments or her strength that the Lord has acted for her. So when we hear Hannah's declaration, it is not by might that one prevails, it raises an important question for us. By what might are we trying to prevail? It might not be our physical strength, and it probably isn't our military prowess, but it could be our finances, our reputation, our intelligence. 
Hannah's song reminds us that ultimately these are in the hands of God and to trust in them is not merely foolish arrogance, but it's also anxiety producing as we know that they will not ultimately hold fast for us. And as verse 10 reminds us, trusting in other sources of power will ultimately come under God's judgment. For the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This verse is interesting because you might remember that at this point, God's people do not have a king. It's one of the unique features of Israel among the nations at this time. And yet, Hannah knows that God will give strength to his king. And in this way, we can see Hannah acting as a prophet for God's people. God is about to start the kingdom of Israel using Hannah's son, Samuel, who will appoint both the first and second kings of Israel. God is using Hannah and her song to shape his people to be ready for their king and to remind them that the Lord's anointed will be exalted. So we can see that Hannah's song contains deep theological weight. In fact, it has what the kids would call a sample from Moses' song. Like how in Billie Eilish's hit song, Bad Guy, she takes the sound of the beeps at a Sydney crosswalk and mixes it into her song. She might have modulated and adjusted it, but it's still unmistakably there. Hannah takes a part of Moses' song of praise and mixes it into her own personal song, mixed and modulated, but also unmistakable. You can feel the echoes and resonant themes here from what Hannah would have learned about God in the temple. Indeed, in our New Testament reading, we heard John the Baptist sample from Hannah's words as he speaks of the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Hannah's words are in the tune of God's salvation plan, his character, and his love. But this song isn't just a song of stuff she knows about God, a list of academic facts. It's not the times table or even a song that helps you remember the fruit of the spirit. Hannah's song does have the weight of theological knowledge, but it's also a song about her experience of God and who she knows him to be. This song comes out of what Hannah has experienced in her suffering and how that has been transformed into dancing. Life brought about when she thought there was no hope. A song that arises from both her learned and theoretical knowledge of God and her lived experience of relationship with him. When we consider what we are singing, that is, what song just bursts out of us, Hannah is an example for us to follow. She is someone who is committed to learning about God and speaking that truth. And how much easier is learning about God for us rather than Hannah? We who have God's word, the Bible, printed uh, in our pockets on our phones, a whole array of sermons, podcasts, apps, daily devotional emails, or whatever to learn about God from. We need to draw deeply on our knowledge of God to sing about him, not in abstract knowledge that we are learning about God, but are in our experience of who God is. Sometimes we can be hesitant to talk about God, and that can be for all kinds of reasons. But I wonder if it's sometimes because we don't have the language that reflects our own experience of him. We might be given formulas or spiritual sounding language, but it doesn't tell the story of what God has done for us. Hannah provides a model of speaking boldly, proclaiming truth about God, 
but proclaiming in the sense of speaking her own truth. And maybe that can be contentious to say, proclaim your truth, because it sounds like it makes it relative and whatever you want it to be. But remember, that isn't the model of Hannah, because she draws deeply on a knowledge of God revealed through his salvation plan, of which she is a part. So that's my first question of this sermon. What are you singing? What is the song that automatically comes out of your heart when you think about your relationship with God? Luke 6:45 tells us, the good person out of the good treasures of their heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasures of their heart produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And Hannah shows us this in chapter 1, where her prayer of misery comes from the deep pain of her heart, and in chapter 2, where her song of praise speaks out of her joy. Both prayers out of the good treasure of her heart, for she knows who God is. And as people who know God to be the God of grace, the God who brings life from death, the God who raises the lowly, the God who so loved the world, he gave his only son, we have a song to sing. We might sample from Hannah's song or Miriam's song or Mary's song or the Christ hymn in the the Philippians or the Psalms, but our song should reflect who we know God to be in scripture and who we have found him to be in our lives. If we truly know God, then how can we fill our hearts with such an abundance that the words flow out in song? Because it might be that the song we're currently singing is out of anxiety or arrogance or greed, forgetting that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for it is not by might that does one prevail. So that's question one. What song are you singing? And my second question is, Who is singing to you? Because the story of Hannah asks this very poignant question. Remember, 1 Samuel starts with this whole cast of characters. There's Hannah's husband, who is introduced by who his father and grandfather are. There's Penaniah, Elkanah's other wife, who appears to be blessed by God with many children. There is Eli the priest. And there is Hannah, who by all measures of society is the least of this group and the most marginalized. And yet Hannah is the one on whom the story centers. Hannah is the one who does 90% of the talking in the first two chapters. And Hannah is the one whose song of praise is recorded. You might expect from this group that the one who would sing the song of praise to God would be the priest. But 1 Samuel goes on to show us that Eli is in fact a very average priest. He's not the one to learn from here. Recently, a group of friends and I were talking about who we'd want to talk to when we get to heaven. And names like C.S. Lewis and Augustine and Luther were thrown out. And I do look forward to having conversations with them and are thankful for the way their words have been preserved as an encouragement for many centuries of Christians. But the story of Hannah reminds us that often the people we should be listening to are those who are deeply overlooked those who have lived lives of quiet faithfulness, who speak to us from the margins. Our New Testament reading reminded us that John called to the people, not from the temple where you might expect, but called out of the wilderness. 
Many of you will know that Samark supports Rough Edges, the cafe for the homeless and low-income community in Darlinghurst. And at Ruffies, for the last year, there's been a quote up on the wall. It's from the English novelist George Eliot. It says, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. The quote reminds us that God's power, presence, action and truth are so often seen in those whose society overlooks. And the quote is made more poignant for the fact that George Eliot is, of course, not the novelist's Christian name, that it was Mary Ann Evans. She had to take a male name in order to be published. Because rather than looking for where the story was, people were much more concerned with who was telling it. Sometimes maybe we can get fixated on what kind of person is telling us about God, what their qualifications or accolades are. But Hannah reminds us that the qualifications to speak about God are a relationship with him, a faithfulness to his character, and a heart that overflows with his grace. That these are the people who we should listen to, even though they might be unhistoric, because they have beautiful songs for us to seek out to listen to. Our church has a whole lot of plaques on the walls commemorating people who have died and their various contributions to either our church or the local community. Uh, but my favourite is that one there. Uh, it's to, in memory of Ethel May Hutchin. Uh, she, it reads that she was a faithful servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, a regular worshipper of this church, devoted Sunday school teacher for 24 years and friend of many children. I don't know any other facts about Ethel, but I bet she had a profoundly beautiful song to sing. And I don't think the story of Hannah tells us that we should go out and find these hidden lives, make them our Christian celebrities. Rather, it reminds us that those who are living lives of quiet faithfulness surround us daily. So let's listen to their songs. And so regardless of whether your voice is halting and feeble, loud and out of tune, or joyfully harmonious, let us all be encouraged to sample Hannah and sing songs of grace. For there is no rock like our God. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.